Amen. Well, thank you, Marty. Uh, again, one of our elders here. Marty, thanks so much uh, for sharing with us. Well, uh, welcome. Tim Rogers, lead pastor at Grace Point Church. I have some bad news to share with you just from the jump. Usually I don't like to start with that, but this happened in our family here a couple weeks ago. That's right. Yeah, for those listening online later, we got a 15-year-old daughter all of a sudden. No, I'm just, just kidding. We, uh, we got this dog that is a golden retriever, St. Bernard Mix. Can't you tell? Uh, yep, so it's going to be a small little animal. Um, she is now like 120 pounds and just eight weeks old. No, she's about 30 pounds, I believe, but she's a large animal. And, uh, you know, in our family, uh, her name's Maggie, by the way, and um, she generally likes to sleep and slobber. That is her temperament, and so I am for that. I'm a fan of that reality. We had a border collie a couple of years ago, and the border collie was the antithesis of that. I was about to say the Antichrist. That seemed a little strong, so I went with antithesis instead of anti... Anyway. So Maggie is in our family-ish, uh, around our family uh, now, and uh, you know, enjoy her. But here's the deal. Um, it takes a little bit to persuade people to go down this road, right? Like, we had a border collie a couple years ago, and she didn't work out. And so uh, my daughter, Liana, pictured here, came a little bit ago and was like, hey, how about a dog? To which we're like, sure, why not? No, we weren't like that. We're like, are you kidding me? Do you not remember the dog we had in our family before? And it just took a little bit of time, a little bit of convincing, but persuasion is a powerful um, tool if you can use it well, right? And persuasion is something that we all have the gift of or the ability of doing that as long as you know how to do that and how to persuade somebody to get and buy into what you really want them to buy into. And there's actually a number of ways to do that. Some people need persuaded, like I need persuaded logically. Like, uh, I need to know, do you know the obstacles we need to overcome in order to have a dog? You know, have we talked about the costs? Have we talked about what to do when we're not there? We talked about who's going to clean up the poop primarily. You know, have we, have we done that? And so I need, I need a logical walk-in. Some people don't need that. Some people need an intuitive, like they react to intuitive persuasion. Like the, the feel of what will it feel like to have a dog and just feel how amazing that would be. And I just sit there staring blankly, you know, cold-hearted, like, I don't care about that. There's still poop in the yard. We need to work that through. Others are a relational persuasion. Like as long as people around me have dogs and maybe my friends have dogs and other people get a dog, everybody gets a dog. And, you know, there's a relational component to persuasion. Some people are uh, more just practical. Like, hey, just think about this. When you come home from work, whatever, there'll always be a dog, like, smiling and greeting you, having stepped in her poop, glad to come welcome you home and lick you and all that, okay? And so there's different ways to persuade people to do things. It's amazing. But, 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 imagine this for a minute. Imagine a world where if my daughter says to me, or if your child says to you, hey, can we get a dog? And you, as a parent, begin to ask this question, what, pray tell, is actually a dog? Like, I'm not sure that we agree on the definition of the term dog anymore. And what if a dog is actually just a skunk in disguise? <laughs> or, you know, we've tried that before and it is no longer, it doesn't work here. And what if, what if we began to question the very definition of the terms that we use to try to persuade people to do anything? It sounds really weird, doesn't it? Because you all know what a dog is. There's not a lot of discussion or philosophical dialogue about a dog. But bear with me for a minute. If we were to question the existence of dogs or the very definition of dogs or would have said, uh, we tried it, we're no longer there, we would be in what I would call a post-dog society. We have tried it and it doesn't work. 
I don't agree with it. I don't know what it is. I'm not sure they're real. And I don't think you can convince me of something that I don't even know of exists or not. We are in a post-landline society, aren't we? Any of you build a home and decide, I really want to get a landline wired into that thing? We are in a post-Walkman society, aren't we? Remember those things? We are in a post-society in which things kind of move on. And I want to make the case with you this morning that we are actually in what I'm going to call, and you may have heard, not only a post-modern society where modernity and science has died as king, but we're also in a post-Christian world where many, if not most, of the next generation have said, you know what, I've tried that, God, no longer there. The assumptions around even the Bible that you talk about, I no longer share with you. The idea of God as a conservative evangelical Christian might uh, explain a God to be, no, we've tried that, it doesn't work. I've been there, done that, no thank you, I'm not here. Tim Keller in his book, um, Center Church, he put it this way, he says, We have entered a post-Christian age. For centuries in the Western world, the Christian church had a privileged place, but this is no longer true. Rather than being a force at the center of culture, Christianity has moved to the margins. There is a broad recognition that the church had allowed cultural institutions to do a lot of its heavy lifting. Infusing people with a broadly Christian way of thinking about things, respect for the Bible, allegiance to the Ten Commandments, commitment to the ethical teachings of the Gospels, and belief in a personal God, an afterlife, a judgment day, and moral absolutes. Then he says this, but no longer can we expect people who already have these basic beliefs to simply come to church through social pressures and out of custom. The times have changed. And I don't know if you've experienced this. I don't know if you've experienced this yet or not. Maybe you or you're you're seeing in your, your children or the next generation, maybe your grandchildren, some of these very same realities. The, the new data around church leaders that we, we read of nationwide is that a regular church attender now comes to church twice a month. So out of four Sundays, the regular is two out of four. Those times have changed. It used to be three out of four. Many moons ago, maybe it was three and a half, but now it's two out of four. Why? Because the, the pressure, the social pressure to come to church out of custom, <laughs> that's changed. That's changing. And so some may say, well, this generation has a commitment problem. (laughs) I don't believe that at all. This generation has a conviction shift, not a commitment problem. They don't have a commitment problem. Just not committed to the old convictions. Just not committed to the old beliefs. Just not committed to the old ways of thinking. It's a conviction. It's a belief difference. It's a shift. And here's the deal, that the church exists in this culture, in this community, in this space. In this series on good news, I've tried to make the case that the good news should actually be great news for people who live near Christians, that leaders of businesses, leaders in schools, people we work with, our neighbors, should look around and say, seriously, I work for a Christian? That's awesome. We just hired a new employee, they're Christian? That's great. I'm going to school with someone who's a Christian? That's good news. Because they are the most kind, they are the most forgiving, they are the most generous people that I know. They are the hardest workers. They exude, and they can't put in these words, they exude the love of Christ to me. Like, I love being near Christians. Because the good news is not just philosophical, but it is also working itself out in practical love to the people around us. Good news should be great news for people around us. So the problem is, we are living in a post-Christian world in which... The very definition of terms, if you are a Christian, if I'm a Christian, the very definition of the terms and the assumptions underneath the way that we act sometimes are being questioned by the very world in which we live, in which we are supposed to minister. Just two years ago, in 2017, 
Barna Research did a study. They, studied, they surveyed 76,000 um, people around our nation. And in that, they tried to get an idea of to what degree would we say that we're actually living in a post-Christian world? And, you know, what are the percentages in some of our larger cities around the nation in which people have, would say things like, um, I no longer believe in God, I consider myself an atheist, um, I don't read the Bible, I don't believe the Bible is accurate, I believe that Jesus sinned, things of that nature. Things would say, whoa, they, they are not believing what Christians believe. And here's what they found. So here's the, the chart. You may not be able to see it all, but you can probably see some of it. Here's a chart of America, and you can't maybe see the fine-tuned detail, but the top right represents the Northeast, and these are the top 10 post-Christian cities in America from 2017. You'll see that we have Portland, Maine, Boston, uh, Massachusetts, uh, Albany, New York. We've got Providence, Rhode Island, New Bedford, Massachusetts, Burlington, Plattsburgh, New York, New Haven, Connecticut, and New York, New York. That's the top seven, all in the Northeast. <laughs> On the West Coast, then enter eight and nine, San Fran, Oakland, San Jose, Seattle, Tacoma, Washington. And then we return to the Northeast for Buffalo, New York, number 10. So in the Northeast, eight out of the 10 top cities are in the Northeast. And they're saying that between 50 and 57% of the people who live in those cities would consider themselves, would fall into this category of post-Christian in that they responded to the survey questions and said of those things, I don't believe there is a God, I'm an atheist, I don't believe the Bible, I don't believe it's accurate, I believe Jesus sinned, you know, on and on and on. The good news is, the closest city to us, Philadelphia, is not in the top 10. We are number 11. <laughs> 50% of people surveyed in Philadelphia would say the same thing. We are in a post-Christian world, and that is just the reality. This is, these numbers aren't changing, the trends aren't changing, and the church has kind of plunked into this world, into this space, and figured out, hey, go be good news to people who may no longer understand what a dog is. Persuade them that they should get a dog, but you're going to have to get underneath the assumptions and the fears, the hesitations, just the way that they even think about a world with a dog or the world with God at all. It is a different world that you live in, that your next generation lives in, and the generation after them. Now, here's the thing. Because we live in a smaller rural context, you may or may not have felt this yet. I love how Michael Wolf, it's a journalist, he wrote this in 2001, actually, in New York Magazine. Here's what he said, that, that there's actually two nations, if you will, in the United States. Here's how he put it. There's a fundamental schism or divide in American cultural, political, and economic life. There's the quicker-growing, economically vibrant, morally relativist, urban-oriented, culturally adventuresome, sexually polymorphous, and ethnically diverse nation. Get all that? That's a lot of words. He said, that's one, that's one nation. Generally represented in the big cities. Generally represented in there. There's those big, big things. So that's one. And then, he says, and then, and there's the small town, nuclear family, religiously oriented, white-centric, other America, with its diminishing cultural and economic force. Two countries. Which do you think describes us? We won't take a poll on that. And his point is, you can feel like the, these trends in the big city don't come home to us, not here in Lancaster County, not here in our little neck of the woods. And you might be right. But there are two countries, if you will. There are this reality that these numbers are not changing and that the church, and the church's children and grandchildren are going to be living and moving into and experiencing college with, life with, internships with, many if not most, who would look around and say, oh, I'm sorry, you want to persuade me to get a dog? <laughs> 
I don't even believe that dogs exist. Are you serious? You're still in that world? I've tried that before. Come on, come on. You believe, you believe that 2,000-year-old book is actually true? Come on, have you not like, moved on with your life from Sunday school teachers and flannel graph? Like, come on, seriously? Are you really believing the Jesus? Like, that he's not just a good teacher, but that he actually is a son of God? You mean you believe in miracles? I mean, are you kidding me? That the majority of people, data will tell us, that the majority of people who your kids and my kids and the next generation will interact with will not share even the same assumptions about things that you might as well. So the question becomes, how can the church actually be the good news in a post-Christian world? How can we do that? To that end, I'm grateful that this isn't the first time the church has had to engage shifting ideologies. We are not living in a world that has never had to deal with this kind of thing, and it is a great opportunity. The church and the message of the church has always been on the move. It has always been fluid and has always flexed to change its form and maintain its function. I love all the way back in First Chronicles, um, we, we read about this going on, that, that there was this, um, this need for David to gather men to, to basically turn Saul's kingdom over to him. So these are the numbers of the men armed for battle who came to David at Hebron to turn Saul's kingdom over to him. And in 1 Chronicles, he goes on to list all these um, fighting men who came from various clans, and there's quite a number. It's a great list of people who came to him, as the Lord had said. And then in verse 32, we read about the men from Issachar, men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. They didn't bring their weapons with them, but they brought their minds with them. They didn't bring their, their, uh, their swords and shields, but they brought their philosophies and ideas. They brought their sociological insight. They brought the cultural awareness of saying, you know what, if you're going to function in this world, we need to understand the times, and then we need to know what to do, craft a plan accordingly. And so the men of Issachar teach us something that Paul in the New Testament, we see kind of leading us into. And so if you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn um, to the, the fifth book in what we call the New Testament. It's the book of Acts. If you don't own a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew near you, and that's our gift to you this morning if you don't own one. But Acts chapter 17 is the fifth book in the New Testament, two-thirds of the way into your Bible. Um, and I'm going to ask you to stop there uh, right at verse 22. and going to lead into this just briefly. And we're going to stop here briefly because I want to be able to have someone share their story with you in just a minute. But Acts chapter 17, um, to get to Acts 17, so before I start reading that, you should know that Paul, has, Paul is a, uh, a person who uh, used to hate Christians and was changed in his heart and mind. He had an encounter with God that totally revolutionized his mindset. And maybe you are like that. Maybe that's your story. Maybe you're here this morning and you're kind of thinking, I'm not sure I believe in all this. So you would resonate with Paul because he for sure did not know that he believed any of this to be true. He had an encounter with God. Everything in his life changed. And he became what Christians now call the greatest missionary of all time. He was the guy who was the guy on missions. He traveled all over the place, spoke to all kinds of different audiences, all kinds of different people with all kinds of different worldviews. Even in Acts, we see it. You don't need to turn there, but in Acts 13, we see that Paul is speaking to a group of people who believed in essentially the Bible, Jews, Gentiles, um, people, God-fearers who understood the Old Testament. In Acts 14, he addresses um, people who were uneducated polytheists, so they believed in the old gods, in traditions. They didn't understand the Old Testament necessarily, but they believed in that. In Acts 20, and then 21 and 24, we see Paul addressing people who um, were Christian elders, um, hostile Jewish mob, and even like the ruling um, 
Roman governors he addressed as well. So he had to figure out how to flex the message through from people who believed in the Old Testament to people who didn't believe it in all, people who believed in random gods, people who had a very intellectual approach to things. And in that space, we see him actually doing that kind of work in Acts chapter 17, where you are right now. Acts 17, 22, we read there, I'm reading from the New International Version. I just want you to observe Paul's approach just in two verses, and then I want to talk about some implications that I think might be good for us as a church. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, that meeting, by the way, that Areopagus was a gathering of um, religious leaders who were talking, who had, and philosophers who would talk about um, things that they thought to be true about the world. And so there, uh, there was a philosophical meeting, um, key leaders in that community. And so in that meeting, he stood up and he said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now stop it right there for a minute. Go back to beginning of verse 22, or the middle of verse 22. He says, I see that in every way. And then he says, for as I walked around and looked carefully. I just want you to observe here. Paul is walking into this world in Athens, and this seems to be his approach. He's walking in saying, what... What do I, first of all, need to observe? What do I, first of all, need to walk into to see what's happening in this culture that I'm about to engage? What is right before my eyes that these people value? Rather than coming in with my beliefs about the Old Testament and Jesus, which he had, before I begin there, let me begin with what I see is right in front of me, and let me walk around and observe the values of this culture and what they already believe. And then what he did is he said this uh, at the... um, He said, I I found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant, and now (laughs) this is great. So you should try this sometime to your boss, maybe. Hey, boss, we were walking around the shop. I saw this. So you're ignorant of the very thing. No, you probably shouldn't do that. But Paul did this to the Areopagus. He says, so you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. It's an interesting thing because Paul isn't just Mr. Nice Guy. Paul comes in. And he acknowledges he sees something different in the culture. And then he says, let me start at this point, but then let me challenge the culture. Let me enter the culture, but then let me challenge it a little bit. Let me take what is unknown to you and recognize that you have acknowledged that there might be something that is unknown. Now let me challenge you with that and take move from the known to the unknown, which I want to talk about in a minute. So first thing I want to say with this passage in Paul's approach is that we need to, first of all, I believe, understand that Christians have a culture. And I don't know if you think about this very much, but um, the truth is, if, if your life is anything like mine, my public and private life overlap a lot. I don't know if you can relate to that, but my public life, the things that I do in public, and the private life of the people I hang out with in my home, people I uh, you know, ride with or whatever, the, the, there is a ton of overlap for me. And there might be for you, too. The people you have over to your home, the people that you, you know, have over for grad parties and birthday parties and go out to eat with or whatever you might do, are probably people that you share some measure of your public life with as well. To the greater degree that our public and private life overlap, the harder it becomes for us to recognize that we have cultural um, idiosyncrasies at all. Because everyone's doing it. Everybody talks like this, don't they? Doesn't everybody see the world this way? Doesn't everybody see money the same way? Doesn't everybody see family the same way? Doesn't everybody see morality the same way? Doesn't everybody see politics the same way? Doesn't everybody see 
fill in the blank the same way because my public and private life overlap a lot. And so the, to the degree that that is happening, then it becomes harder for me even to see that I have and that Christians have and the church has actually a culture that we overlay on people who are outside of faith. Just, it, I'm not condemning it, I'm just acknowledging that's just a part of the reality. That we have certain things that we talk about, certain language that we use, whether that's language around, you know, hey, I'll, I'll pray for you. Okay, what does that mean? What does it actually mean to pray? Can you help me understand that? Or, hey, if we will say to somebody, um, you know, blessings on your week. What, is that, what does that even mean? It's language that I use for Christians who understand that. People who grew up in church and get that idea. You know, hey, we have a fellowship hall downstairs. What is a fellowship hall? What does that mean? I mean, you might understand that. But those outside of faith, those outside of the church, what the language that we use are shared. It's, it's efficient. But does it communicate? We live in a post-Christian world. We have assumed moral values that we share together with one another. We have assumed beliefs. When I ask you to turn to the book of Acts, many of you knew where to go. Some of you may not have, but many of you did. And many of you probably, probably shared the value that Acts is probably authoritative. This is probably reliable. This is probably a good place to go. Like it's a good thing that we should open the Bible. That is not the way the majority of our world is working now. And so this is a post-Christian world we live in, so how do you function in a post-Christian world where the very things, the very default behaviors that we're used to doing are going to be challenged, especially by the next generation, where our kids are going and where your kids and grandkids are going? How does that work? And so here's what I want to, want to say. You want to, want to build, like Paul did, build from the known to the unknown, take what is known and, and move toward the unknown. And in particular, I love the way Tim Keller in Center Church puts it, and I'm going to put it up here and then explain it. He says this, you know, with logs and rocks, how about that? I want you to imagine for a minute if you're standing on the, the side of a, a, a creek or a, a river, let's say, and there's both in front of you some logs and some rocks, and if I were to ask you which one were to float, it wouldn't take you long to say, you know, what are you, a dummy? Of course, the logs will float. And so if the job was to get both the logs and the rocks across the river, the smartest way to do that is to, to bind the logs together and then take the rocks <clears throat> and put them on top of the logs and float them across the river, and we're good to go. You wouldn't bind the rocks together, put them underneath the logs, and hope that they stay together because the shifting current would probably loosen the rocks and they would fall down. And so the image is pretty simple and a good one to get in your mind is this, that there are certain values, there are logs and rocks that our culture shares, a post-Christian culture shares. There are people who are outside of faith in Christ, people outside of the church, people who are questioning the very validity of faith, that would have beliefs that are actually consistent with what God would want. Those we call logs. They're, they're shared values that I can attach to, for example, love your neighbor. If you're familiar at all with the work we're trying to do in our community, the idea of the common good through the Together Initiative Network and all the partners and agencies we're working with, why do we do that? Because we think there are some log values there that, that are to be affirmed. We think that underneath love your neighbor or underneath the common good is this biblical idea, this God-centric piece of all of us, whether you call him God or not, of love your neighbor, like do good to people around you. That is a shared value that even though some people say, I don't believe the Bible at all, I don't believe that Jesus came and died, but I can get into, we can help our kids with education. We can help those in poverty get out of it. We can help find better housing for people. I can get into that. What are you getting into? Why are you even getting into that? I will tell you, the reason you're getting into that, it's kind of like Paul saying, I look around and I see the gods that you have. Here's one of them. You want to help people. That's awesome. Like, I want to affirm that. That's a value that I think God has wired into you. 
Now, there's some values that you will say, but I don't see if there's some values that are rocks that are counter to what God would have us to do. For example, uh, anything goes sexual ethic. I would say that's not consistent with the scriptures. And so how can, if you're into like love your neighbor as yourself, and then you're like, well, what if, and tell me if you ever heard this before, why can't we just do whatever we want, and as long as nobody gets hurt, everything will be okay? Like, if you haven't heard that yet, you will. If you haven't heard that from your kids and they haven't told you everything they're hearing. Like, why can't we just do whatever we want, and if no one gets hurt, what's the, what's the problem? The va- there's a, a fundamental problem here, that the, the, the primary um, grid is not just my values or your values, but who is this God who creates everything? How do I even define what hurt is? And what if hurt doesn't show up for the next 3, 5, 10, 15, 20 years? What if there actually is an ethic above that? To that I would say, well, that's a rock. Here's the log is love your neighbor as yourself. What does it mean to love one another really well? Let me weave together a couple of those threads, throw a couple of logs together, help us see that we can love one another well and take this idea of a rock, your, your rock idea, and put it on top of that. What if God actually wants us to love our neighbor well, to love one another well, and to love selflessly, an agape kind of love? Let me take your idea that you want to love someone so well that you know anything goes in our relationship. Hey, they can be with anybody they want to. They can be with anyone at all that they want to. What if I were to place that on top of a value you already have? Let me, let me take what is different. Let me take the unknown and give some definition to it in the context of what is known. And so what Paul does is move from the known to the unknown. You have altars here to the unknown God. Let me tell you about him. You have this altar to loving your neighbor as yourself. It's great. Let me tell you about what that all means. And so we, we engage a culture in which at some points diverts from what God may have, but in some points also lines up quite nicely with what God has. And so we want to talk about this known to the unknown. We want to talk about entering the culture. We want to talk about entering, that loving and, and embracing, being near, and finding out what in the world can I affirm with the culture that we're around. So as a church, this is how we want to lead in. Secondly, uh, this is a, an ongoing conversation. But the, the conversation is around an adaptation to the culture in which we live in. Um, depending on what generation you're a part of, depending on the ways that you have seen church adapt over the years in your personal history with church, um, you will have seen the church adapt in different ways. And I love, Keller says something like this, I'm not sure if this is his quote, but um, here we go, that if we over-adapt, we have accepted the culture's idols. But if we under-adapt, we may have turned our own culture into an idol. Let me process that one for a minute. That if we over-adapt to a culture, if we just try to look so much like a culture that is post-Christian, we have nothing new to offer. There's nothing significant. There's nothing to call anyone to. If you over-adapt to the culture and have nothing, you lose any of your distinctives. But if you under-adapt and just remain, we are going to be a Bible-believing, conservative, evangelical, whatever, right-wing, left-wing. We're going to be whatever. This is what we're going to be. And anyone who likes to line up with that, come on in. And we're going to hold to the faith of our fathers, and we will never change. And what happens is we under-adapt to a culture. And that culture itself becomes the idol. Some of you have experienced that. Where the idol itself becomes what people wear when they walk into church with you. What the songs are that we sing and the words that they are and the, the songs that you're allowed to listen to or not allowed to listen to. The culture itself becomes the idol when we under-adapt and are not able to flex with what we see. And so this is a constant tension of the church. So this morning at this level, I'm talking about the church on the whole. But if we over-adapt, we got nothing to offer. And if we under-adapt, 
than the culture that we share with one another, the language that we share, the ways that we do everything we do. That itself becomes the idol, and so we are in trouble either way. And so the constant conversation is around that as a church. So this is what we try to do, and this is what I want you to know we're trying to do at Grace Point Church. In terms of how we see the church, how we see the church leading, how we see the church moving, and then I want to um, invite someone up to share their story. We want to enter, challenge, and appeal. We want to be able to enter the culture. By enter the culture, I mean be able to walk into the culture and say, listen, we, like, we love you for who you are. We're not going to judge you for that, but we're going to figure out how can we weave some logs together. We want to enter and let you know we love you as you are, totally as you are. This is not a, this, this is not a, um, uh, you know, uh, a bait and switch, but the truth is, the truth has got to be, as you currently stand, even in your position against God, even in all your moral decisions that are different than what Christians might historically believe, as you stand right now, we want to enter and love you completely as you are, completely, no agenda. And then, as opportunity arises, we want to take some of those rock beliefs and challenge them. We have to be able to be in a position as a church to be able to critique culture, no matter what. Otherwise, we've overadapted to the point of not being able to be savvy and wise enough to do that. We have to be able to still be in a position to critique. And then we want to appeal. We want to say, what about a preferred future? <laughs> what, as you think about who you want to be, you think about what it means to be in relationship with one another, in relationship with God, what if we could explain to you a way that we can help you see a future that's completely different than where you currently stand. We want to enter, we want to be able to challenge, and we want to be able to appeal. One of the things, if you could do it, it would be awesome. In fact, I'd love to go with you if you could, would be to travel to Europe, all right? To travel to Europe and see the advancement of the church, which is, um, or the decline of the church, depending on how, uh, how you see it. But many of these post-Christian um, ideologies have been uh, in the European mindset for generations now which you'll see the decline of the church. And one of the privileges we've had um, at Grace Point, whether you know it or not, over the past um, several months, is we've actually had a European with us in our midst, which is very exciting. Um, Sarah Abdus. So, Sarah, why don't you come on up uh, here? Sarah Abdus has been a, uh, a foreign exchange student uh, from Italy. Right, Sarah? Yeah. Yep. And so Sarah uh, is a, a great young lady, and uh, I invited Sarah here because it's been great to hear your story, Sarah. Um, she shared at um, Pecker Valley Baccalaureate the other night, last week, I believe it was. Um, and Sarah has had a journey uh, coming from Italy and coming from a home which I would not say would be a strong Christian family. No, definitely not. <laughs> definitely no. not. Coming from a background in Europe that would be very different than where I might come from today that would probably line up with some of these post-Christian things that I was talking about this morning. So can you share, Sarah, some of your story over the last several months here? Yeah, I would love to. Um, so, yeah, I came here about nine months ago. And when I came, uh, I was honestly just looking forward to have a great time, go to parties, go all out, and you know, make some fun memories, I guess. Um, but yeah, in Italy, I didn't believe that there was a God. Um, so when I came, I started to go to church. And um, I was really stunned because people were reacting weird. Like, to me, it was really weird seeing people getting emotional and, like, listening with so much passion to the messages and worshiping and just, like, getting really into it. And so um, 
I started to go to church every Sunday, and I I was starting to get interested into uh, like the messages, but I still felt like really distant from God. I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, so as my journey kept going, um, I faced some tough situations, some challenging things, and um, at a time uh, I didn't really have. Uh, people that I could talk to or trust. And so I, I felt really lonely and hopeless. Um, and I decided to pray. So that's why I started to pray for the first time. I had no clue how I was supposed to do that. And if praying would have helped me to feel better or improve my situation. But in my heart, it just felt like it was the only thing and the right thing to do. Um, and so after that, um, I accepted doing my youth retreat with Grace Point Church. I decided to accept God in my life and read his words and try to absorb them and um, kind of like make God part of my life. Um, so uh, one of the moments that I will never forget of this spiritual journey that I had is when at the youth retreat, um, all the kids were asked if we were ready to accept God and glorify him in our lives. And so we were asked to stand up, and that's what I did. I didn't really know what I was doing. I didn't feel like I was in control of my body, but I just felt like God was controlling my, yeah, my whole body and made me stand up and make that step towards him. Um, so after that, I, I became more thankful for everything that I had. I realized how blessed I am uh, for being able to be here, coming to church every day, seeing nature outside. And I started to not th take things for granted anymore. Um, so I'm really thankful for um, coming to Grace Point Church because I got to see what a, an actual community looks like. Um, it was amazing to be able to see how family uh, came together uh, to celebrate the good news, but also how they were uh, so tight and uh, supportive through the hard times and I'm beyond thankful for my Christian friends who have been so caring and loving to me they always cared about my journey and accepted all my questions even if there were awkward questions and they were amazing role models to follow and they helped me to uh, strengthen my beliefs and um, support me into pursuing my own relationship with God. Um, so today I'm at the stage where I'm beyond proud to say that I believe in God. I believe that because of Jesus sacrificing himself on the cross, I'm accepted and loved. And... Now, because I've accepted Christ in my life, I have so many brothers and sisters. 
And I know that this spiritual connection will never be broken, even if I'll be distant. I'm really scared to go home. I'm, lo- I'm looking forward to see my family, but I just hope that God will be with me. And I hope that you guys will keep me in your prayers. And I just thank you because everyone here in this church has blessed me so much and was really welcoming to me and made me feel part of a huge family. And so thank you. Sarah, that's amazing. Sarah leaves on Friday to go back home to Italy, which we all think is a terrible idea. Um, please be sure to see Sarah before you go. Um, Sarah speaks 12,000 languages and is able to speak to you. But Sarah, it's an incredible story of how someone comes and their, their mind is in a different place about who God is, even assumptions about him, and then feels the love of a community who cares no matter what. And then his challenge and beliefs. Maybe the way that I see the world isn't quite right. On the basis of love and then appeal. Okay, what if there's something more? What if there's a different future? And sees who Christ is. So Sarah, we're so grateful for you. Um, we wish you would, could stay longer. We know you can't. But we hope that there are times we can meet you and, and your mom as well, especially. So we really, we love you, Sarah. Thank you for sharing. Um, so this is what we would love to see happen across our community across the region in which we have impact here, that in a post-Christian world, there still is hope. Good grief, there's a ton of hope. Good grief. You just have to know the, the world in which we function, where our kids are going and where our grandkids are going. In a world that needs some redefinition, needs some love, needs some logs kind of pulled together with the rocks set on top to float across to see who in the world Christ is. So we have the chance this morning uh, for, to celebrate communion. I'm going to explain that in a minute. Next week, what I want to do in this good news series, we have two more weeks for it. I want to talk individually next week. Today I was talking about the church, where the church is at. Next week I want to talk about our role in particular. If you're a Christian, what does it mean for your role in particular? So I want to talk about that. But this morning we get to celebrate communion, what Sarah just talked about, that Christ died on the cross for us. I mean, goodness. We sang about that. Ben and company led us this morning, and some of those songs are incredible. That that God sent his son Jesus, that's what we believe at Grace Point. God sent his son Jesus to come die for us, that, that when we confess our sins and believe in him, he forgives us from our sins, and it's, that's that. I mean, by grace, through faith, we believe. We don't have to clean ourselves up to get right before God. We just confess that he is indeed the Savior of the world, and, and by grace, through faith, we know him, and it changes lives, it changes the way we see the world. So we're going to celebrate that in a second here together as a church, and if you... Um, believe that. We'd love to have you share in communion with us. You don't have to be a member of the church to share with us, but um, you know, we'd love to also share that message with you. If you don't know who Jesus is and the impact that he can have, um, we'd love to have you talk to Sarah, talk to us, talk to anyone you might like to. Sarah will be helping serve communion as well, so uh, we're excited for that. Um, so if you would, um, will you pray with me as we begin to get ready to, uh, to take communion? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to come together as people this morning around the hope of Jesus and the, both the challenge and the opportunity it is in the world in which we live to share the hope of God in a way that is going to stretch us and move us and challenge us with regularity 
always to figure out how we adapt without over or under adapting, and always to figure out how we can affirm that which we see in the world and invite the people around us to a future and to see who God is in a way that maybe they have never seen before. Thank you for Sarah and her story and the reminder that you... uh, you're a God who loves and serves and cares for us through your son, Jesus. Now, as we get to share in communion and kind of come around that moment again in the upper room in Jerusalem, a place where Jesus and his disciples gathered, as we prepare to kind of recreate that space where Jesus was about to be crucified and the night before that, he sat around with the closest men in his life and shared the bread and the cup and reminded them, this is my, the bread represents my body that will be broken on the cross, and the, the cup represents my blood that will be shed for you. And so kind of gave as a commission to believers who are gathered from there until he returns, that when they meet, they should do this and remember him, remember this moment. And so I pray that this time when we eat the bread and we share the cup, will be a reminder of what we believe, that your son Jesus Christ came and died for us. And I pray that you'd help drive that home here this morning for us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray.